Welcome to the Humble Hoof Podcast. My name is Alicia Harlov. This is a podcast for both horse owners and hoof care professionals, offering discussions into various philosophies on the health of the hoof and soundness of your horse. Please check us out on Facebook or at thehumblehoof.com. A special thank you to our sponsor, Equithrive. This one goes out to all the horses with the crusty necks, fleshy backs, and girthy middles. The horses who gain a few extra pounds simply by breathing air. The easy keepers on limited pastures. The folks at Equithrive know there is nothing easy about easy keepers. That's why they have formulated products just for you. Equithrive's Metabarol is a pelleted supplement that is scientifically proven to support healthy metabolic function and a healthy inflammatory response in horses. It's bona fide joint and metabolic support, all in one easy to feed pellet. Visit equithrive.com today and use the promo code HUMBLEHOOF to get 20% off your first order plus free shipping. www.equithrive.com. With my hoof care journey starting with a navicular horse, I became pretty obsessed with the digital cushion. So when I heard that Sharon Warner did an entire PhD study on the digital cushion, I decided that I need to reach out to her and talk to her about it. All right. So why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about your background and how you ended up studying the digital cushion in your research. Yeah, sure thing. So during my degree, um, I did an equine science degree. I met a lovely lady called Lucinda McAlpine on a work experience placement. She is a classically trained dressage rider and she kind of turned to a more natural approach to managing her horses. So she kind of switched to barefoot without any blankets or rugs, switched to a simple kind of forage based diet. So while I was there, I was only there a couple of weeks, but um, while I was there, she suggested that I might read the Strasser booklets, which I did. And those little booklets changed my world. So I did a five-day trimming course with Casey Lapierre back in, I think it was 2002. And although I, you know, I soaked up the theory, but I had real trouble putting that theory into practice, even um, on cadaver limbs. I just, you know, it's like I had two left hands. I just couldn't do it. Um, But anyway, the, the idea of horses being healthier through more natural management kind of really stuck with me. And then between my second and third year at uni, I went out and spent three months as a wrangler uh, working on a dude ranch in Wyoming wow. and um, the head of the outfit's wife had a PhD and she um, she was really the one that inspired me to pursue my barefoot passion through research so I decided that I wanted to study wild horses I wanted to know you know how how their feet are different to those of domestic horses what can we learn from them um, I assumed that wild horse feet were superior when I assumed that they were healthier and they didn't suffer the same kind of diseases as domestic horse feet. And I think some of uh, Brian Hampson's and Chris Pollitt's work has kind of proven those assumptions wrong. Right. <laughs> um, but the desire to kind of generate that evidence about the consequences of shoeing was still strong. And it was a real controversy back in the, um, the UK then and, and perhaps maybe it is now. So after graduating, I did plan on doing a master's and I I liked the idea of looking at zoopharmacognosy, which is the concept that wild animals can self-medicate through their selection of nutrition. But instead of that, um, I went back to the US um, and I uh, did an internship at Kentucky Equine Research. 
And I kind of thought that the practical hands-on research training might be more valuable than another kind of classroom-based qualification. So Kentucky Equine Research, they do nutrition and exercise physiology. And I spent a year assisting their program. And I had like the best year of my life, but I kind of decided that the nutrition industry wasn't where I wanted to focus my efforts. I wanted to get back to the kind of the foot health stuff. So when I came back to the UK, I started applying for PhD projects and I was getting overlooked all the time. Um, so then I thought, well, maybe I need more research experience. So um, I uh, applied for a technician role here at the Royal Veterinary College um, and I started working actually back where I am now um, in the structure and motion lab. So I think you've had a couple of our people on before talking, but um, the group basically study animal locomotion. And I found myself part of this huge group that they, they I mean, they include biomechanists, engineers, biologists, veterinarians, and I was like completely in my element. And so I thought it was the ideal place to pursue research in horse feet. So I did my PhD and it kind of morphed into something a little bit different than what I intended it to be. But that's, you know, the nature of research. And I'm proud of what I achieved. I had a seven year break um, from research during which time I lived in Nebraska. But now I'm back in the Structure and Motion Lab um, as a senior research technician. And although, you know, lots kind of has changed, there's not much going on in terms of horse locomotion and farrier research. But I'm hoping that will change in the future. But that's kind of my background. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds so cool. I love how much you've like actually traveled and pursued the different areas that you can study. That's so inspiring. It's, it's been a long windy road. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. And honestly, that's like some of the things that I'm really passionate about too, like nutrition and also movement biomechanics, that kind of thing. So it's really cool that you've, you've followed that path. Um, and it all kind of ties together, doesn't it? It's kind of joining the dots. It all feeds in. So oh, yeah. um, it's, it's all useful stuff. Right, exactly. We can't look at one thing in isolation because it's all connected. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> well, great. Well, I know that um, when I was looking into some of the things you've done that you've researched, you know, elephant feet as well and horse feet. Is that right? Yes, yep. Yeah. And so why don't you talk to us a little bit about your research into elephant feet and horse feet and what the purpose of your study was? Yep, sure thing. So foot health is an important welfare concern for horses and elephants. Both species seem to suffer similar pathologies. Um, so a large part of my work was trying to understand how these two, they kind of the seemingly opposing and disparate um, foot morphologies, how can they both deal with impact forces generated at a foot contact? The paper um, that was published in 2013 looked at a whole range of hoofed mammals um, to investigate it was looking at body size on various impacts parameters. And horses and elephants were just two kind of examples within that uh, range. And in my mind, horses and elephants represent two extreme foot designs. So horses can be thought of at one end of the extreme foot design scale. So think of their single digit with angular grade foot posture, um, minimal soft tissue with a small fibrous digital cushion encased in a fairly rigid hoof capsule. And then the elephant feet can be thought of at the other end of the scale. So they have five digits, a semi-angular grade posture with lots of soft tissue. They have a huge fatty um, digital cushion and it's all encased within a fairly kind of soft slipper. So you might assume that the, the rigid foot, like the one of the horse, is less able to deal with the impact forces, whereas the more compliant foot, i.e. the one of the elephant, is better able to absorb those forces. So how come they both are affected by similar foot pathologies? But what you have to remember is 
the horse foot and, and limb is fairly light, whereas the elephant's foot and limb is, is fairly heavy. Right. So when we actually compared the two, the impact forces between in both species was fairly similar. So it's about 0.7% of body weight. So that kind of fits in with previous studies, which, which show that as animals get larger, uh, they tend to move more slowly. They have straighter limbs um, and more robust bones, which all helps to keep kind of stresses proportionate. So a big part of my project was looking at why the impact phase, um, how that might kind of relate to pathology. And it's still thought that it's to do with the rate of force application and then the, the cyclical nature, so the frequency of the force application. And that's still kind of the two main things of why impact forces are associated with injury. So my actual more PhD work looked at comparing kind of the foot morphology in horses and elephants. And I did 3D reconstruction of anatomy through high-resolution MRI. And then I looked at cadaveric digital cushion deformation. So I put cadaveric limbs in a press and looked at how the digital cushion deformed in the MRI. And then I looked at internal pressure changes as a result of that limb loading as well. So I found that the digital cushion in the horses actually deformed. It varied regionally, and it's kind of consistent with the interphalangeal joint flexion. And I found that the internal pressure increased, which is in conflict to a couple of published studies, which is interesting. Huh. Yeah. Um, I, I guess the take-home message from my PhD is that even though you think of horses and elephants as having kind of extreme foot designs and they're both kind of opposite to each other, actually, both feet have to support and stabilise and break and propel the body. So they both have evolved to do that. They just kind of look very different. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, the digital cushion is something that like we as hoof care providers are always or at least should always be considering. I know I always do and the horses that I work on, because I see, you know, if I see a really weak lacking digital cushion, I want to see if mm -hmm. we can, you know, what's causing that if we can, you know, do anything to help support that. So before we get too much into that, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how the digital cushion works and what its role is? And um, if you have anything about, you know, information about, you know, what is it made out of it? How can we tell if it's healthy or not? That kind of thing. Yeah, sure thing. I will try my best. Um, <laughs> although I think we're kind of still debating how it works. And it is difficult to consider it, you know, in isolation, obviously, because it's so closely connected to the ungual cartilages. But typically, the digital cushions in most animals are fatty fibrous pads that cover bony prominences. Horse digital cushions are different to say human, cattle, elephant and ostrich cushions because they're more fibrous and they have less fat. So the different studies in horse digital cushions, they've had some conflicting results as to the exact tissue composition. And that's likely because there's regional differences in the tissue. So uh, there was one study that uh, found there was more elastic fibres kind of proximally, whereas there was more collagen fibres distally. Um, there could be differences due to the age of the horses or the body weight. Sometimes there's like foreleg versus hindleg differences and lateral versus medial, depending on where you sample um, that digital cushion. Um, so the paper that I really like, and I might mispronounce uh, this name, but um, it's Eggerbacher. Eggerbacher? It's a 2005 paper anyway. So they say the horse digital cushion is basically coarse connective tissue, myxoid tissue, if I pronounce that right, um, fibrous cartilage and fat cells. Uh, but the interesting thing is this myxoid tissue, the paper says it resembles an, a number of miniature gel cushions, which I find is fascinating because it's just, you know, if you think about sneaker design and trainers and stuff, that's where that 
kind of you know the gel pads and cushioning that kind of thing so um that's interesting um when it comes to the digital cushions role it's been proposed that it protects the underlying structures so it can moderate the rate of force application and attenuate the impact shock and vibration um it obviously plays a role in force transmission but at the same time it has to dissipate that force and distribute the force so it has to reduce pressure and it does that through compliance it also has a role in venous return by compressing the vascular structures it also has a role in resisting movement of p2 uh, through kind of uh, the fetlock movement and a role in proprioception so the loading should stimulate the mechanoreceptors and then that gives feedback back to the brain and i'm not sure i can say how it works i mean i think of it as a, a almost like a passive structure um but it has to have kind of mechanical properties that permit c- conflicting mechanical functions so it needs to have compliance and flexibility uh, but then it also needs to be um stiff enough and and have some rigidity as well as elasticity so it's kind of this balance uh, between compliance and stiffness and elasticity yeah yeah, so it sounds like it's, you know, overall very important, but also kind of like a mystery in some ways, I feel like. I mean, I you, you know a lot more than I do about that. <laughs> <laughs> a special thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Cavallo. For our Humble Hoof listeners, they are offering 20% off their Cavallo Trek hoof boots using the coupon code HRN at checkout. The Trek is the world's most popular and versatile hoof boot and Cavallo's toughest trail boot while also doubling as an option for therapy or rehab. The front closure system makes it easily adaptable to various hoof shapes, and the TPU upper design allows for maximum strength while minimizing weight for the comfort and ease of movement for your horse. These are recommended by vets and trainers and also loved as transport boots by barrel racers, ship jumpers, dressage riders, and everyone in between. Again, for 20% off a pair of treks, use the code HRN at checkout at cavallo-inc.com. Yeah, so I think one thing that I'm always wondering about, because I come to horses that have, you know, these digital cushions that are lacking in a lot of ways, is, is there any research on whether an atrophied digital cushion can regenerate? Or, like, do you have any speculation about that if there isn't any research? Yeah, I'm not sure that there is at the moment. I mean, I think it's generally accepted, like you say, an atrophied or diseased cushion is likely to have suboptimal performance. So it's not going to be able to perform those roles as it should. But I don't think there's any kind of experimental data to actually demonstrate that. I know that Bowker, if that's how you pronounce his name, the 2003 paper suggested that like a, um, a healthy foot is more robust and that has thicker ungual cartilages, more fibro cartilage and vasculature. And that, you know, ground contact with the frog bar and solar surface was key to health. But that doesn't mean that a horse without that kind of anatomy is suddenly, you know, not going to be able to survive. It might be that that, you know, unhealthy, the horse with that unhealthy anatomy might alter how the foot lands. Or it might change some aspects of its gait or, you know, reduce its locomotive performance. But it, it may take years for that kind of unhealthy anatomy to result in any kind of measurable damage or lameness. So I think that's where it's very difficult to come up with that evidence. But, and unfortunately for us, but fortunately for the horse, there's, I mean, the horse has so many strategies and compensatory mechanisms to compensate for that, that even having less than ideal anatomy doesn't mean that, you know, it's, it's not going to survive. It's still going to have that life. It just, 
it might be shortened, for example. So in my mind, a healthy foot is one that can, you know, perform all those mechanical functions and it has, you know, the correct kind of material properties without needing any external support and without suffering injury. Um, and I think of injuries being, you know, when the tissue damage exceeds tissue repair. Right. So I think, you know, you guys as hoof care providers, obviously, I mean, it's the same message. You have to consider the individual horse when, when you see it and, and all the other influencing factors like management, nutrition, movement, workload, climate and moisture, substrate, that kind of thing. But I mean, just keeping up to date with the latest advances. And I think collaboration between you guys. So, you know, you connecting with other experts in the industry to share ideas and experience and obviously you know creating good relationships with vets and uh, that would be that's a good thing and, and I think that all hoof care providers it's a shame you don't have the 3d mapping software and x-ray machines because you guys are out there every day and you could be you know you're already kind of generating data by doing what you're doing if you had some way of you know measuring that then that would be research right there you know right it's a yeah. shame we can't equip everyone with all that kind of equipment and software <laughs> I know I was at, I've talked to that I talked about that so much with so many of my friends that we see horses you know lame sound and everywhere on the spectrum and if we were able to yep. document their hooves more closely because I mean obviously mm-hmm. if a horse goes and gets diagnostics done at a vet with a vet or at a veterinary hospital those horses usually have something wrong so all this data we have recorded is with you know unsound or you know lame horses exactly so yeah yep. and you know what even trying to get you know, volunteers to come in to participate in research studies. It's it's quite difficult. It's not, it, it really is, you know, a real feat just to get a sound horse to come in because, you know, most people, <laughs> you know, think their horses are sound and they're probably not quite right. sound. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that, yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, so in, in, talking about soundness and movement, I mean, something that I always do is watch the horses that I work on and watch how their lower limb is moving and landing biomechanically. So do you think that the way a horse lands or moves affects how the digital cushion is functioning and how it absorbs the ground reaction forces? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, forces are all to do with the mass of and acceleration. So obviously the horse has got a lightweight foot and limb. So that's kind of taking care of three evolution, but the impact velocity still increases with speed. So, I mean, you can expect forces as high as two and a half times body weight on a single limb. And um, so the high forces are still kind of a risk factor. So in a perfect world, the horse foot biomechanics would ensure that the foot is decelerated prior to impact, which would mean a low impact velocity. This is kind of achieved in a horse by the limb being protracted before it hits the ground we would want the rate of force application to be kept low below damage thresholds and that's kind of achieved with a little bit of slip when the horse foot lands there's a bit of slip there we would want ideal foot biomechanics to take into account to exploit the active mechanisms that are there so to use joint flexion and muscle lengthening we would want it to exploit the passive mechanism so the mechanical properties of the soft tissue structures to absorb the energy. We'd want to make sure that the ground reaction force is aligned with the bony column to avoid those large moment arms. We would we wouldn't want to we'd want the breakover to not be delayed. So that can be obviously affected by the length of the toe and the substrate if that toe can dig in. So we want you know an efficient breakover, not a delayed breakover. 
we would want loading that was symmetrical or at least a foot that could handle some kind of a degree of flexibility to adapt to uneven ground. We'd want to make sure that proprioception was unhindered. We'd want to make sure that the contact area was maximised to reduce the pressure. And obviously, you'd have to think about that leg still needs to return energy for efficient locomotion. So it's it's a real a combination of things. In a perfect world, foot biomechanics would do all those things, but it's very difficult. Right. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, there's a lot that comes into play. And something that... You know, I would love, and we can, we don't have to include this if you feel like it's not a fair question, but something that I would love to know is, you know, when I am working on a horse, ideally, I always say that I, I'm looking to see them landing, you know, subtly heel first to be utilizing that digital cushion with their movement. But is that something that we can't really say? Is that something that you think is, is important or not? Or can we not, we not really know? Well, do you know what, as I was, I was doing some reading in preparation for this and, and it had been in my mind, you know, heel first landing is, is, and then obviously that's become a controversial thing now. So I think we can safely say that toe first landing is a no, no, we don't want that, but whether we want heel first or a flat landing and, and it obviously comes down to now we can measure those things with a high-speed cameras, for example, that our eyes can't detect. But knowing what's healthy and how it should be, I still think that's a question. I think there's still lots of questions about what's ideal. And it, and it comes down to, like you said before, when we see horses here, you know, in the lameness workups, they're here for a reason. So knowing what's normal and what we should be aiming for, that's the question. Right, Yeah. I know it sounds like I wish there was more research specifically into these kinds of things, but it, I know that research takes time and money and, and mm-hmm. like you were saying, getting people to participate that actually have sound horses, <laughs> that kind of thing. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. Um, do you know what? You asked me a question and I don't think I answered it very well. You said about whether it, you asked me about whether an atrophied cushion could regenerate. Yeah. Right. Okay. Let me, can I add, add to that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Please do. Yeah. (laughs) When I was preparing for this, I did find a paper, uh, but it was in um, bovines, but it did say that daily exercise can increase the volume and surface area of the digital cushion. So that's kind of, you know, great on a, on a note, but obviously bovine digital cushions are more fat than fibrous tissue um, and, and the arrangement's different. So, you know, yes, it's a paper that kind of supports that. And I think you can, If you think of like normal biological tissues are in a constant state of remodeling. So think about like a bodybuilder that uses physical activity and nutrition to to build that muscle mass. But because the cushion is mostly avascular, it it might be limited in its ability to kind of repair and self-renew. But I think that ungual cartilages are a different kettle of fish in that they are vascular. So they could feasibly be targeted through, you know, the right stimulus and exercise and potentially nutrition. So maybe you can get the an adaptive response in the cartilages, which would then kind of impact the digital cushion. Because if, if it really is like a passive structure, as you make the cartilages kind of more voluminous and robust, maybe that kind of changes the even just the shape, the volume of the digital cushion. And whether the actual tissue composition could change, who knows? Yeah, you know what, that makes me think about, so, you know, obviously there are horses I work on that might start with 
you know, when palpating between the heel bulbs and under, like over the frog, like it feels really Mm -hmm. weak and kind of squishy. And over time, it feels like that seems to develop a more dense tissue in there. And I wonder if Uh it's more like that volume that we're feeling is the cartilage is like you were saying, and not, I mean, it's, it's hard to say, because you're not gonna, you know, chop open a live horse's leg, you know? Exactly. And you know what, with the MRI work, it's very difficult to, I mean, I was using high resolution MRI and it was, I can't remember the protocol now because I'm not an MRI technician, but it, I think it was focused on um, visualizing fat because we were trying to visualize the digital cushion, but trying to separate that cushion from the cartilages, trying to find the boundary of that, it was quite difficult. And it, it really, I mean, obviously, you know, you go through the slices and kind of have to distinguish the two structures. And it's quite, it's quite difficult. So I think considering them almost as kind of not one thing, but, you know, they're very related to each other. So, yeah, for sure. Right. Well, is there anything that, you know, like last minute advice or, or anything that you want to tell to the farriers or trimmers or owners or vets <laughs> that might be listening? I guess I just want to get across really that research kind of only provides tiny little pieces of the puzzle and then the puzzle is large and complex you know foot health is a large and complex puzzle um so i think we're heading in the right direction in that there's there's more and more studies out there that kind of provide little pieces of this pie there was a study by robstoff and he found that the feet expand and contract more when they're barefoot but we don't really know what level of restriction causes kind of a significant or detrimental effect there was a study by Parks, and uh, she found that the peak vertical forces and the landing velocities were higher in shod horses. There was another study that found impact vibrations are higher in shod conditions, but we don't really know what um, frequency causes a significant or detrimental effect. And then we also know that the surface area is reduced in shod conditions, which increases the pressure, but then what level of pressure is detrimental to tissue health? I don't know, it's very hard to be prescriptive to say, okay, this amount is dangerous and this is what we should avoid. It's kind of, there's always a scale. And I don't think we know yet. We know too much pressure and too much force is detrimental, but we don't know what's a healthy force and a healthy pressure to stimulate growth. At what point does that turn detrimental and damaging? I mean, that's that's kind of a huge question. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> we're no closer to knowing the answer to yet. Right. And I think we have so much debate, like even just online that I see just so many people fighting about things that we don't really have concrete, concrete research absolutely. for on either side. And obviously we can feel passionate about things, but yep. you know, ultimately I think we're all just trying to get horses in a good spot and have sound horses that we, we look after. So yeah, it's, it's yep. hard when there's just not that data there. No, and, and that's why I would, you know, encourage, gosh, I mean, if you're the people listening and the hoof care providers, I mean, if there is a way to document what you're doing and then and then at least then you have a record, I'm respecting you probably do that anyway. Okay. Um, but who knows if that could turn into research, if, you know, you, you spot a pattern or a trend and you think, do you know what, this could mean something. I, I want to approach someone about, you know, maybe turning this into a project or, or you know, like I, I just think there's such a resource of expertise out there with all the hoof care providers and farriers and and whoever that it's a shame if all that information is lost and it's not kind of pulled and, and someone kind of brings it together and I think that would be that would be a great thing 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know hopefully maybe somebody listening has some some way to get some some grant or some research going in, I know, in some I direction. Know, be- <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, because we really don't know enough and we need to know more. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, thank you so much for being willing to do this. And honestly, this was amazing. I think it's like exceeded my expectations and the information that we have. I was expecting it to be a whole like big question mark, but I really love that you had so many studies that you could pull from and and information that um, can really help enlighten some of this area, even though it's still so much of an unknown. Um, So I really, really appreciate your time on this. Yeah, no problem. And if ever anyone wants to talk feet with me, I'm absolutely (laughs) very happy to talk feet all the time. (laughs) Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And have a great rest of your day. And thanks again for your time. You too. All right. Thank you. (laughs) Bye. Bye. I always say that I'm slightly more hoof obsessed than the average person. And chances are, if you're listening to a hoof care podcast, you are too. So we should probably be friends. Feel free to find me on Facebook or email me at thehumblehoof at gmail.com.